going to throw some, just a bunch of stuff out as we get started, and then hopefully it'll be like, uh, what do you call it, loose ends, and then we'll tie them, hopefully. If I forget to tie any loose end that we leave, just throw it out at the end of the study, and we'll, we'll try to answer anything that I've given you that I didn't answer. There is a doctrine going around right now, and it's hyper-grace. And so in conclusion of the study, we're going to deal with this idea of hyper-grace. The truth of the matter is God, in his grace, has saved us. The Bible clearly says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that by grace you are saved, and that not of yourselves, not of, uh, not of works, it is the gift of God, right? Lest anyone should boast. And that's a paraphrase of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So we're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, our strength is grace, um, everything is by grace. But when we take this idea of grace out to an illogical conclusion, then we end up with this doctrine of hyper-grace. And at the end, I'm going to read you a paragraph of a summary of what hyper-grace is and how um, it's not biblical. But when we get to a place where because of grace... We no longer have to repent. We no longer have to confess. We no longer have to walk in sanctification. We no longer have to cooperate with God and the work that he's doing from the inside out in our lives. Then grace has gotten to a very dangerous point in our lives. And we're seeing it right now in the church, unfortunately. And so many in the church are made to sit in sin comfortably as they sit in church. You shouldn't be living a lifestyle of sin, coming to church and feeling comfortable in that sin because the convicting power of the Holy Spirit through God's word should have an effect. And so what I'm noticing is much of Christendom will not go through the Old Testament, will not care about the law or the things in the law, because Jesus fulfilled the law and because um, our righteousness is found in God, because Jesus kept the law perfectly. And what it does is it, it gives license. It gives a license to live a lifestyle of sin and think that God is okay with that. And nothing could be further from the truth. And so we're coming out of the book of Daniel and the nation of Israel as our example, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, why is the Old Testament given to us? Why were the patriarchs written about? Why do we have the history of the nation of Israel? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us, these things are written so that you who would come to the end of the age, you who would be living in the last days, can learn from their mistakes, can learn from the things that they did. So these are an admonition for us, these these lessons that we have in the Old Testament. So God's heart is revealed through the law. God's heart is revealed through the things that are found as he deals with the nation of Israel, his kids, his children. And so two things contributed to the nation of Israel being caught in this Babylonian captivity. One was idolatry. They began through disobedience to God to intermarry with the other nations as they came into the land of Canaan. So there they are. They're coming over 
through the Red Sea, over into the Jordan, into the promised land. And God told them clearly, when you come into the promised land, do not intermarry with the women that are in that land, lest they turn your hearts away from God and you begin to serve other gods. Well, they did that. And the day of reckoning came. But also in our time of responsive reading, we saw in Leviticus chapter 25 that they had disobeyed the law of the land of the Sabbath, right? Six years, work your land, work your crops, work your vineyards. But in the seventh year, let it rest. And what God promised was he would give them a double crop in the sixth year. That way they can save. And when that seventh year comes, they can let the land rest. 490 years would go by and they didn't let the land rest. And God did a little math and he took 490 and he said, you were supposed to give me every seventh year. So we're going to divide that seven into 490. You owe me 70 years. So you're going to be led into Babylon and you're going to be captive for seven, 70 years. Well, we read through the book of Daniel. We saw all of that take place. Daniel in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel is reading, and he's reading Jeremiah, the prophecy that says 70 years, you're going to be in this Babylonian captivity. And he says to himself, whoa, we're coming up to the 70 years. Like God's going to set us free. We're going to go back to the land. And so that's what the book of Ezra is all about. Ezra follows the book of Daniel. Nehemiah follows the book of Ezra, historically. And so the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah in the Hebrew uh, Bible, in the Jewish Bible, is one book written by Ezra. We have it broken up into two books. Ezra, the book of Ezra, deals with the rebuilding of the temple. The book of Nehemiah deals with the rebuilding of the wall that protects the temple. And so... This is where we're at historically. This is right where we're at, if you will, just within the church. So hyper grace is definitely something I want to deal with. And these lessons that we get from the Old Testament, very important for us to learn how to relate to God, how to grow in in the things of God, how to have this relationship with God. Now, let me throw a question out. You don't have to answer it. It's rhetorical. Um, Do you think that there's a difference between somebody who stumbles in sin and somebody who is rebellious to God with high-handed sin. Let me give you an example. So we had, this Wednesday uh, night I taught at the, uh, the Bible study through 1 Peter chapter 5. And you have this section of scripture there where it says, cast your cares upon God because he cares for you. And so we are to cast our cares upon God. The root word for that word cast has something to do with a riptide. And so if you think of a riptide, you think of of shallow water for the most part. Hopefully you're in shallow water, right? And when you're at the beach and you have that riptide, what does it do? It pounds you into the sand and it's very difficult to come up and and to get air, right? Because it just catches you in its riptide and there you are just being smashed to the ground. And it's difficult to breathe, right? It's difficult to get air. And I see some of us struggling in that aspect of sin where I'm just trying to get air. Life is hitting me so hard. Things are coming at me to the extent that 
I'm just trying to get my nose up out of the air long enough to be able to breathe. Where that individual is one, but and then you have this other individual where I know the truth. I know what the Bible says. I know what God wants from me. I know what he expects of me, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it might not be with that bold of an attitude, but for the most part, if we, were to, if we were to look at the steps of how you are living your life, we can say, wow, is there not a contrast between those two different individuals? Absolutely. Now, the question is, does God look at those two d- individuals differently? Does he deal with this individual that is simply struggling one way, that's trying to just, man, I'm just, I'm just trying to breathe as opposed to this individual that says, I know the truth. Almost God drawing the line in the sand and you like a spoiled, rotten brat toddler saying, I'm going to jump over the line. What are you going to do about it? I dare say, according to the scriptures, God definitely deals with those two individuals on a different basis in a different way. One is called high-handed sin. And the other is the thing that probably all of us struggle with at times, just general sin. We struggle. It's, it's not through lack of want. It's not because I don't want to walk in obedience or not that I don't want to be close to God. And so in that, we have the nation of Israel coming out of this Babylonian captivity. Let's go ahead and pick it up. Ezra chapter one, starting at verse one, the Bible says, now, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying. So God is putting on the heart of a worldly king that not only are you going to let my people go, Not only are you going to free them from this captivity, but they're going to go in obedience to what I'm calling them to, to begin to work on the foundation of the temple, to begin to work on the building of the temple, and to take it as far as as Nehemiah to begin to even build the walls that protect and surround the temple. And by the way, King Cyrus, you're going to foot the bill. I'm going to have you pay for it. You're going to let them go. You're going to send a letter with them, and you're going to pay for it. Isn't that awesome? God moves upon this worldly king's heart, and he does exactly that. Now, this would be prophesied back in the Old Testament. Daniel would be reading the Bible as he's coming to the end of that 70 years, and he would be reading in the book of Jeremiah the exact prophet that would say, hey, 70 years are determined, And Daniel would be like, whoa, we're almost to that place. So he begins to pray, and God gives him one of the greatest prophecies in all of the Bible, the 70 weeks prophecy of of the nation of Israel, right? So Jeremiah chapter 29, let me read you verses 10 through 14. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting at verse 10, the Bible says, For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. 
For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from, wh- from which I cause you to be carried away captive. What an awesome prophecy given in the book of Jeremiah prior to the nation of Israel being delivered. And so Daniel's reading this and he sees that God had this plan all along. Now for us as an application point, this section of scripture holds true as well. Somebody believing in the doctrine of hyper grace wouldn't even be in this section of scripture. They wouldn't even understand that our sin can lead us into captivity. That through our own fault, through our own negligence, through our own behavior, we can be brought under captivity by Satan because his objective for us is to rob, kill, and to destroy. And so we give room for the enemy. We give a place for the enemy to work in our lives. And again, whether that comes through just life is overwhelming and, and... the struggle is real, or whether it's high-handed sin, nonetheless, we find ourselves at times in bondage because the enemy wants to destroy us. And this rings true for us just as it did for the nation of Israel prophetically way back then. Verse 12 again, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God's will is a good, acceptable, and perfect will according to Romans 12.2. The plans that he has for us right here are to give us a future and a hope. It's an expected thing. And we can participate with God or we can resist God. We can think that we have a better idea or better plans, or we can say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Verses 2 through 4 in Ezra 1. Thus says King Cyrus, or says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given to me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And so he writes this, letter. He writes this note that he's going to do exactly what God has called him to do. Prophesied 180 years before Cyrus's decree would go forth in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 28, the Bible says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built 
and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Pastor Chuck Smith says, one of the greatest apologetics that affirms the Bible is the word of, is the word of God where the Lord spoke of future events with interesting details. God even named Cyrus through the prophet Isaiah 150 years before he was even born. He names him in the scripture, Isaiah 45, verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you though you have not known me. God names Cyrus. One of the prophets, I forgot who it was, one of the prophets would take this scripture and, and show it to Cyrus and be like, dude, did you, did you know your name was in the Bible? Check this out. And he reads it. And because his name is prophesied in the Bible, he had compassion on the nation of Israel and did all that God said would come to pass. So, As we go through the book of Ezra, we see that the rebuilding of the temple is what it's all about. Key verses, Ezra chapter 3, verse 11. God has a plan for his people. Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, the Bible says, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So nation of Israel is idolatrous and they didn't obey God to let the land rest. God takes them, allows them to go into Babylonian captivity. He uses the nations of the world as a stick to spank his kids, as a rod. They're in this Babylonian captivity. They're now coming to the end of that 70 years. They're set free to go back to the homeland. I do find it interesting that they went in three different waves. And within those waves, the first wave goes. Everybody could have went, but there were reasons why people gave or why they couldn't go. For one group that made a little sense, to me at least, as I studied, the one group was all they knew was Babylon. All they knew was this captivity in this land that was foreign and they had established their life and their lifestyles in Babylon. Whether they had businesses, families, or things that they were accustomed to, they were in Babylon. And so it took them a little while longer to come out of Babylon and head over to the nation of Israel. Others, on a negative end, on a negative level, said, oh, nah, you know what? I'm comfortable in Babylon. I like it here. Yeah, I mean, there's that God stuff and going to Jerusalem, I guess, would be spiritual, but I don't want any part of that. I like what I got here in Babylon. And again, I believe that God sees those two different situations from a very different perspective. And I believe that he deals with those things very differently. In Ezra chapter 4, verse 2, we see that there's an enemy. And I'm going to read you verses 1 and 2. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord, God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, And we have sacrificed to him since the days 
of Esharhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Clearly, in verse 1, it says, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to hinder the work of God. They wanted to slow the work of God down. They weren't for the God of Israel. They weren't for the nation of Israel. They were antagonistic to God and his plans. And so the enemy always has his little people to do his bidding. And so we as Christians need to recognize that we need to as well be careful. We need to be careful that there is an enemy and that he comes against the plans of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it the simplicity that is found in Jesus, the gospel and everything that it entails and everything that it's about, that we would be very careful. Jump on over to Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, and we see that God always has a remnant. Now, the book of Ezra is broken down into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 are pre-Ezra. Ezra doesn't come on the scene in the first person until chapter 7. And that's where he gets his hands wet, if you will. That's where he continues to pick up the work of the Lord. What would happen because the enemy comes in chapter 4? There would be a seven-year time gap between the work that started, the foundation being built, and then all the way to chapter 7, seven years later, where Ezra would come on the scene and complete the work under his ministry. Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord, of his, of, of the Lord his God upon him. So God's hand was upon Ezra. He was skilled in the scriptures. He knew the Bible very well, and he was able to teach it, but he was also a, a, a priest out of the Levitical priesthood his great 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 grandpappy was Aaron the first high priest in the nation of Israel and so he comes through that lineage and God uses him in the midst of what's going on God always has a remnant in Romans chapter 11 verse 5 the Bible says even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace God always has people that have not bowed their, nail, their, bowed their knee to Baal, as he told Elisha. Remember Elijah running and scared because Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you. And he's like, oh my gosh, God, where are you? I'm the only one left of your prophets. And God says, calm down, calm down, bro. I got 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal, so relax. And so we need to recognize that God always has a group of individuals, a remnant. And if you've never felt in ministry at times like you're the only one, then you're probably doing it wrong. Man, Lord, I'm the only one that sacrifices on this level. 
I'm the only one that has dedicated myself to this degree. Lord, I'm the only one that have turned away from all of this wickedness of this world. At times we do feel alone in the work, but don't get it twisted. There are many who haven't bowed their knee to Baal and are serving God full board, just, just all the way, not bowing their knee to Baal in this world. So as you go through the book of Ezra, you recognize that the work is going to get done, that God's will is going to happen. And as I was reflecting on Babylonian captivity, the nation of Israel as our examples, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, us getting caught in sin and, and being captive in this world and then the Lord allowing certain things to be able to get our attention, to, to wake us up out of this uh, lethargy, out of this slumber. And this idea of God's work and building the temple. And, and how does that relate to us? How do we apply the book of Ezra? How do we, how do we know to be able to take that today where we live? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 19 through 20, building the temple, if you will. The Bible says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so first and foremost, God cares. He cares about you. He cares about your struggles. He cares about your body, your soul, your spirit. He doesn't just care about your spirit and and your relationship with him. He cares about the things that come into your mind, the things that you struggle with, the daily needs and provisions that that come your way and and the things that you desire. He cares. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, we studied it this Wednesday once again that Cast your cares upon God, for he cares for you. And that differentiates Christianity from all these other beliefs and these faiths, where some of them don't even know if they're really going to heaven when it's all said and done. How sad is that? God has secured heaven for us. He's made a way for us to be able to go, but he cares about your life today. And your body was bought And your body now houses the presence of God as a believer. And he wants you to glorify him in your body with the things that you do and the things that you think about and the things that you um, desire, all of that. God cares. And so the first point of application is your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Take care of your body. Take care of your soul. What is your soul? Your emotions, your mind, your strength, your will. All of that is housed in the soul. And God cares about your soul. He cares about how you feel. That's that's crazy. I remember one of the first times I came to the realization that God not only loves me, but he likes me. Man, does that not nourish the soul? He likes me. Like, I don't like me sometimes, you know? Like, I'm like, I don't know how people put up with me sometimes. But God wants to spend time with me. God desires me. 
of who I am. He just wants to walk and talk with me and spend time. And that so nourishes and ministers to my soul that God cares on that level. And I am so much better for it in every aspect. And your body, when you have aches and pains and hurts and it's not going the way he intended from the original design and sin entered into the world, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Take care of it. And then the second application point would be Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. We looked at it last week in our study, but it says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Haiti shall not prevail against it. God cares about his church, and he's building his church, the local church. And God wants us to care about what he cares about. If the condition of your church were based on your devotion and passion for God, what would it look like? If you were the sole temperature of the health of the church, would we have a church that cared about prayer? Would we have a giving church, a gracious church? Would we have a church that is immersed in the scriptures and knows the word of God to the degree that you are devoted to God is to the degree that you care about the things that God cares about and God cares about his local church. He cares that we're intertwined, that our lives are connected, that when you hurt, we can hurt with you, that when you rejoice, we can rejoice with you. Or are you an island? And you've got your personal life. And you don't have time or energy to care about what God cares about. Because God cares about his church. We are to pray knowing that it depends on God but we are to work as if it depended upon us. Pray as though you know it depends upon God. Work as though it depends upon you. And I think that's a mindset. So let me read you this paragraph. The term hypergrace has been used to describe a new wave of teaching that emphasizes the grace of God to the exclusion of other vital teachings such as repentance and confession of sin. Hypergrace teaches teachers maintain that all sin, past, present, and future, has already been forgiven, so there is no need for a believer to ever confess it. Hypergrace teachings says that when God looks at us, he sees only a holy and righteous people. The conclusion of Hypergrace's teaching is that we are not bound by Jesus' teaching, even as we are not under the law that believers are not responsible for their sin, and that anyone who disagrees is a pharisaical legalist. In short, hypergrace teachers pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. Jude chapter, uh, verse one, verse verse four, chapter one, there's only one chapter in Jude. Verse four says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men 
who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be careful to not think that God doesn't want us to grow in his grace and understanding of what he has for our life. Let the nation of Israel be exhibit one for us. They were called the chosen people of God, right? And did God not chasten his kids? And did he not let them go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years? We just read it in the book of Daniel. And the, the result of being in captivity for seven years and coming out of it was, now how about you get back to my work? Now how about you get back to the things that I care about? Let's lay the foundation for the temple. Let's work on building the temple. And then let's build the walls that surround the temple for protection. I will close by application with this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. The Bible says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Roxanne and I came here in May of 2010. Shortly thereafter, about four years into it, God gave me this scripture. Where are we at? 2018, so what is that? Eight and a half years. So maybe it was about three years ago. So I got this scripture, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And I might have shared this with some of you. But right across the street over here, you have the police department. So you have the fire department right here, and then over here you have the police department. Right over on the other side of that straight same street, you have the Masonic Temple, Masonic Lodge. It's a wicked, evil organization that does good for the community. I believed that, I thought that this scripture that God gave me, an effective and open door, and there are many adversaries, was I was supposed to join the Masonic group and learn where the community, the needs of the community are so that I can do good for the community and infiltrate that group and bring light, the adversaries. And God shut the door. I tried to join the police um, chaplain's department, and God shut the door. And then God opened a door for me at Whittier Christian High School to work there, and I saw the adversaries. They came and hit me one after another, one after another, one after another. And I saw, wow, fulfillment. And God has revived this scripture, and this scripture is still not complete. A wide and effective door God has opened for me here at Calvary Chapel, Living Water. And there are many adversaries. I don't know if you know this, but we have tried to be usurped three times. A woman tried to take over Calvary Chapel Living Water in my tenure since I've been here. A man tried to take over Calvary Chapel Living Water since I've been here. And a married couple tried to take over Calvary Chapel Living Water since I've been here. 
I'm very, very simple-minded person. And when I came to Calvary Chapel Living Water, I knew I was out of my league. I knew it was bigger than me. I knew that I didn't have what was needed. I did not possess what was needed to be able to do what God was calling me to do. And God, like a good father, said, Son, reach up and grab my hand and I will lead you. And I was just simple enough to grab God's hand and I've watched him lead me. And he would go before and reveal these people that are trying to usurp the church, the authority of the church, to take over the church. And I've just been simple enough to just say, God, continue to lead me. And God has been faithful to do that. And so the work that God desires to do and the things that God desires to do through this church in this community are still here, still yet future. I pray and hope that you are on board to what God wants to do through your life. Get it from God. Your face on the floor before God. Hear from God as he ministers to you what he desires to do as you come alongside the work in your local church for the glory of God, for his name's sake, for his kingdom. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can learn from the nation of Israel, that we can go through the pages of Scripture and yet find incredible application for our lives and the things that you desire to do in our community. And so, Lord, may we be faithful to be busy about your business, to shine in a dark world. And Lord, for anyone here who is struggling in a riptide, demoralized, being pounded over and over and just trying to find air to breathe, Father, I pray that you would descend into their world. And Lord, through an acknowledgement that the water is only two feet deep and all they need to do is stand up. I pray that you would instruct them and encourage them in that. And Lord, for any experiencing open rebellion to you, Father, through confession and repentance, I pray that they wouldn't walk out of here without getting that right, asking for your forgiveness growing in sanctification, knowing that you love them, that you care for them, that you want to see them healthy, body, soul, and spirit. And so, Lord, may we look to you all the days of our life, and may we desire what you desire. In Jesus' name, amen.